Well, take your copy of the Word of God and open it with me this morning to the book of Exodus, chapter 14. We won't read every single verse, but we're going to read various verses throughout this chapter. Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Years ago, there was a math major at Stanford University by the name of George Danzig. One day, he lost track of time, and he showed up late for class. Slightly embarrassed, he quickly grabbed his seat, and he looked up, and he saw two math problems that were written on the blackboard. He assumed that was the homework assignment for the day, wrote it down in his notebook after class, went home, started working on those problems. He noticed it was a little bit harder than usual, took him a little bit longer than usual to finish it. But eventually he solved the problems and he turned in his work. About six weeks later, there was an enthusiastic knock on his door. His professor came to visit him personally. It turns out because George Danzig was late for class that day, he did not hear the announcement that the professor made at the beginning of the class. The announcement where the professor told them that these two problems on the blackboard were considered impossible and that even Albert Einstein had not been able to solve them. Well, George Danzig did indeed solve them because he did not know that they were impossible. Ladies and gentlemen, our God really is the God of the impossible. How many of you believe that this morning? The Bible says in Luke 1.37, nothing will be impossible with God. Matthew 9.26 says, with God all things are possible. Mark 9.23 says, all things are possible to the one who believes with God there is never an impossible situation there's never an impossible problem and never is that more clear than when we read the passage that we're going to be studying this morning we've been looking at the life of Moses so far in the book of Exodus a couple of weeks ago we looked at the Passover last week we looked at the Exodus event this morning we're going to be looking at one of the most famous events in Jewish history, the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, most of you know this story, or you're at least familiar with it. There have been a lot of songs that have been written about the story. There have been various movies that have been made, and I'll just say it, some are better than others. But thousands of years later, this story reminds us that there is never a situation in which we cannot trust God. And so as we go through this chapter, there are three lessons that I want us to learn. And in particular, three seasons of life, three times in your life when you are going to need to go back to and cling to this truth that God is the God of the impossible. First of all, when your situation seems insurmountable, remember, He is God of the impossible. When your situation seems insurmountable, look at verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. Last Sunday, we saw how when Israel departed from Egypt, God intentionally led them south, even though the promised land was northeast. And God took them on this big, long detour. We come to chapter 14, and God takes it even a step further. If you could look at this on a map, it would be like coming to the very end of a dead-end road. Imagine Israel to the east, you have the Red Sea. To the south, you have the desert. To the north, you have this place called Migdol, which in Hebrew literally meant a fort, some kind of military installation. And soon from the west, you will have Pharaoh's army, north, south, east, and west. There was nowhere to flee. It was a lose-lose situation. Now, I'm not a military expert. I've never had the privilege of being a soldier. But every military expert agrees from a strategy standpoint, this was insane. You never intentionally surround your army with hostile forces. And yet that's exactly what God did. God led them to this place, and He did so on purpose. Now, why in the world would God do that? Look at verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. All this time, God was luring Pharaoh into a trap. He saw their wanderings, and he said they must be lost. They've got no idea where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. Well, Israel might not have known what they were doing, but God certainly knew what he was doing. And God intentionally led them to that very place. Now, verse 4 says that God did this so that he would gain honor over Pharaoh. And that word honor, it's the same word that we see in the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. That word honor means to make large. It means to add weight. That's what we're going to be doing at the luncheon in just a few minutes. (laughs) But in this case, there's nothing that they could do or we could do to make God any larger or to make God any greater than He already is. But His fame can be made bigger. Our understanding of who God is can become larger. And everything God did then and everything that God is doing now, everything that God allows to come into our lives is for this purpose for His own glory. You see, in spite of everything that had happened in Egypt, in spite of all the plagues, including the Passover, the Egyptians, 
And yes, the Israelites too still had a small view of God. And that's why God led them to this particular place. That's why God put Israel in what seemed like an impossible situation. To summarize the story, the Bible says, starting in verse 5, Pharaoh took 600 choice chariots. In other words, the best of the best. These were his army rangers, his navy seals. Not only that, he sent all of the horses and all of the chariots of his army to pursue Israel. You want to talk about one-sided? Pharaoh's got chariots. Israel had none. Pharaoh had an army with experience. Israel had none. Pharaoh had the tactical advantage. Israel had none. But Israel had one thing going for them that Pharaoh didn't have, Egypt did not have. Israel had Yahweh fighting on her behalf. And so God led Israel to that particular place. Why? So that she would be forced to trust Him for a way out. You know, if God had made it easy they would have thought that they were the ones who had done it. They would have patted themselves on the back. They would have given themselves all of the credit. You will never learn how great God is. You will never experience just how powerful God is until you come to some point in life where you must trust God to provide a way of escape. And it is then and only then when God puts you in that place of complete dependence do you learn this lesson, do you learn the truth of that old saying, the will of God will never take you where the grace of God will not keep you. God was teaching them that lesson. And so when your situation seems insurmountable, remember, He is God of the impossible now there's something else i want you to notice when you're tempted to go back he is god of the impossible look at verse 10 and when pharaoh drew near the children of israel lifted their eyes and behold the egyptians marched after them so they were very afraid and the children of israel cried out to the lord At some point, I imagine the Israelites could hear the soft drumming sound of horses galloping from a distance, getting louder and louder and louder, and then perhaps a cloud of dust rising in the distance. At some point, they look up at the horizon and they can see the helmets and the shields and the swords glistening in the sun, and maybe there was a war cry when Pharaoh's army showed up, and all of a sudden their worst nightmare has become true, and it sends chills down every one of their spines. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Every single person in Pharaoh's army that day had recently buried the firstborn in their family. How mad do you think they were? They were out for vengeance. They were out for blood. The Bible says in verse 8 that when Israel departed from Egypt, that they went with boldness. 
But notice in verse 10, it says now they were very afraid. You know what I've noticed? It's a very short trip between boldness and fear many times in life. It's amazing how quickly you can get from one to the other. We tend to think that if a person is bold today, they'll be bold tomorrow. But it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Because every day is its own battle. And every battle you fight in life requires its own faith. Success today doesn't guarantee success tomorrow. Every day you have to rely upon the Lord. Yesterday, the Israelites were bold. Today, they're full of fear. The Bible says they cried out to the Lord. This was not a cry of faith. This was a cry of desperation. Look at verse 11. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? By the way, go back and read the story. They never said such a thing. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Have they already forgotten everything that God has done? Have they already forgotten the plagues? Have they already forgotten how time and time again God struck the Egyptians while sparing the Israelites? How many times does God have to prove himself before they, or let's say it, before we are willing to trust him? You know, Israel did what a lot of folks do when there's adversity, when they're in a tough situation, when there are problems. Blame the leader blame the leader Moses this is your fault as if he had something to do with it Moses had never taken a class on leading an exodus there was no course on how to cross the Red Sea no book called exodus for dummies Moses is just trying to cling to the Lord and follow the Lord as best as he can. And so the people, they begin to complain and criticize Moses. Did you know the Bible says in Psalm 106 that Israel rebelled by the Red Sea? Do you realize that the Bible says that their complaining was actually rebellion against God? Now, we'll talk more about their propensity to complain, and ours as well, in the weeks to come, because we're all guilty. Our cup overflows, and we complain about the size of the mug. But their complaining, the Bible says, was rebellion. And let me tell you why. Because a complaining heart is always a faithless heart. Well, here's Moses' response to their complaints in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, 
you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Moses said, God is going to save you, but you are not going to do a thing in order to accomplish it. Now understand what was true for their salvation is also true for our salvation. God saves us not on the basis of what we do. Our salvation is based on what has already been done for us in Christ Jesus. Man-made religions may say, you have to work for it. You have to deserve it. You have to earn it. The Bible says the work has already been done. Believe it and receive it. Moses gave them three commandments that day, and i got to tell you, he handled this a whole lot better than I would have had I been the, the, the object of those complaints. He said to them, Fear not, stand still, see what God does. Fear not, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. Sometimes in life, the very best strategy that you have is Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that He is God. To be still, to wait upon the Lord, and to trust Him, letting Him fight for you. But you know, this goes against our nature, doesn't it? Especially us men. Something's broken, we want to fix it. There's a problem we want to act. We want to do something. This goes against our nature. But sometimes you've got to stand still before you can go forth. God, Moses said the Lord is going to fight for you. The same God who fought for them is willing to fight for us. Well, look at verse 15. Here's God's response to all of this. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. God asked a rhetorical question. Why do you cry to me? Normally, it's a very good thing to cry out to the Lord. You're at the end of your rope. There's an emergency. You don't know what to do. You're desperate. Yes, cry out to the Lord. He's ready. He's willing to hear you. Having said all of that, please listen to me very carefully because I'm about to say something that could be easily misunderstood. As your pastor, I will never stand in this place and speak against prayer. Prayer is crucial. The Bible says we are to be a house of prayer. Paul said, pray without ceasing. Prayer is so important. Listen to me very carefully. Prayer must never take the place of obedience. Prayer is not a substitute for faith. We say, Pastor, I don't understand. How would that even happen? 
God calls you to do something. You know what it is God's calling you to do. And you say, let me pray on that. Or let me pray a little longer. There may be times in your life where God says to you, or God says to me, stop kneeling and start walking. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said there are times when prayer is not enough. To that I wholeheartedly agree. Well, the people cried out to the Lord, but God wanted them to do more than cry out. They wanted to go back. God wanted them to go forth. Going back was never an option. When God liberated Israel from Egypt, He would never send them back because Egypt was the place of their former bondage. At times in Israel's history, God chastised her, sending her to Assyria, sending her to Babylon, but God never sent her back to Egypt because when God frees somebody, when God frees you, He never sends you back to your old master. There's no going back to Egypt. Even today, however, I can't help but notice there are a lot of people who essentially say, let's go back. There are a lot of people in our, our county. There are a lot of empty church buildings where somebody once said, let's go back. I've noticed that there's a, a longing that a lot of people have to go back to the way things were, to go back to the way things used to be. There are a lot of folks today who, like the Israelites by the Red Sea, love to complain about the way things are. They have a way of romanticizing the past, forgetting all the, uh, uh, the bad things and remembering only the good. And sometimes it turns out the good old days weren't quite as good as you remember them to be. But there are a lot of folks who say, oh, how we wish we could go back to the old homestead. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, how I wish we could go back to the old homestead, back before all the changes, back before all the traffic, back before the pandemic. Put aside for a second the fact that some of us quite like the new homestead. Thank you very much. God hasn't called us to reach the old homestead for Christ. God's called us to reach the homestead of right here and right now. And while a lot of people have been complaining about homestead, let me tell you what God's been doing. He's been bringing the nations to our doorsteps. He's bringing more people here who need to know Christ, who need that living hope of the gospel. He's giving to us the greatest opportunity, perhaps, than we've ever had in the history of this church. Well, stop complaining. We're not going back. It's time to go forward. Ladies and gentlemen, when you are tempted to go back, that's when you must remind yourself God is God of the impossible. One final thing I want to share with you. When you need a miracle, He is God of the impossible. Look at verse 19. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them 
And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Last week we learned about this cloud and this pillar of fire that God supernaturally provided his people when they left Egypt in order to lead them down the Sinai Peninsula. Well, verse 19 says that it was an angel of God who was leading them. It was an angel of God who put that cloud, who put that fire into motion. But when Pharaoh's army arrived, now the Bible says that the same angel who went before them went behind them. Because the same God who guides us guards us. And that same cloud that Israel followed departing Egypt, it became a barrier in between Egypt uh, and the Israelites. And I want you to notice, for a very brief amount of time, everybody was on one side or the other, this barrier. And notice the Bible says, on one side there was light, and on the other side there was darkness. And for a brief moment of time, everybody there by the Red Sea that day was either in the light or in the dark. And there was no third option. Now we see that. We see a picture of humanity. How the Bible teaches that every person here, every person you know, every person in this world is on one side or the other of God, one side of the gospel or the other, either on the side of condemnation or on the side of grace. The Bible teaches that every person you know either belongs to the kingdom of darkness or belongs to the kingdom of light, and there's not a third option. Well, God put that barrier in between them. Now, that's the first miracle, but notice verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Can you imagine a wind so powerful that it would split the Red Sea into two, creating a wall on the right and on the left? I, I don't know. I haven't done the math. I read online where somebody said it would take a, a wind of at least 350 miles per hour. I don't know. But could you imagine a wind so strong to split the sea and yet that same wind allowing God's people to peacefully cross over on dry land. All of this happening when Moses extends his hand. Now, folks, there is no natural explanation for this. So don't even try. Don't listen to those who would try to offer you some natural explanation about the depth of the water and the tides and all of that. This was a miracle. This was a supernatural act of God. Look at verse 23. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, 
let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Even they get it. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. By the way, I want to point out something to you, just food for thought. Our faith is in the Word of God, not in archaeology, but I do find it very interesting that there are some archaeologists who have presented what appear to be photos, images of what sure does look like chariot wheels covered in copper at the bottom of the Red Sea. There's a whole lot of debate about that, and there are archaeologists who argue both sides of that. I'll let you decide for yourself. I don't have the answer, but I think it's very interesting. Either way, the Bible says we come to the end of the story, and not one Egyptian soldier survived, and not one Israelite was harmed. Now, God does not expect us to do ourselves what only God can do. He does expect us to have faith and believe that He is able to do it. And I love what the author A.W. Tozer said once long ago. He said, anything God has ever done, He can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, He can do here. Anything God has ever done for anyone, He can do for you. And to that I wholeheartedly agree. Folks, when your situation seems insurmountable and you are tempted to go back and you need a miracle in that moment, remember, God really is the God of the impossible. And when we think back on this story from Exodus 14, of course, we look at this from the perspective of the New Testament. We remember what the Apostle Paul himself said about this particular story when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, listen to what Paul said about this story that we have read this morning. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now notice that statement. All were baptized into Moses. What does he mean by that? Paul is saying that when the Israelites followed Moses across the Red Sea, that was serious, that was real, and at the same time, that was also a picture of something bigger and something greater. You see, Moses was a mediator between God and Israel. To the people, Moses represented God. To God, in a sense, Moses represented the people. When Moses faced what seemed like an impossible situation, he led Israel through the waters of judgment to salvation on the other side. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to be our mediator. He was fully man and fully God so that he could reconcile man to God. 
He came and lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and then he died on the cross for our sins. Jesus faced what seemed to everyone like an impossible situation when his body was placed in the tomb, but on the third day he rose again. Acts 2.24 even says, it was not possible for death to hold him. Now Jesus leads us through the waters of death and into eternal life. The same God who saved Israel from Pharaoh's army long ago is ready and willing to save you from sin and death and judgment. He's ready and willing to save whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You really are God of the impossible. We thank You for doing over and over again what only You can do. And yes, God, we've seen it even in our own lives as well. I can't help but think, God, that in this congregation here this morning and those watching right now online, there are probably many who are in a situation that to them seems impossible, where it seems like every option can only result in defeat, where all they can do is trust you to do what only you can do. So God, I want to lift up every man, woman, boy, and girl in that situation right now. You know who they are. You know their situation. You know all of the details and I pray you'd give us the grace to trust you no matter what. To base our lives on your word, believing that you are a promise-keeping God. Father, I pray for those who are here today who perhaps have never come to that place of placing their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord of their lives. We've seen in the Scripture the people divided, darkness on one side, light on the other. And your word tells us that's, a, that's the world we live in today. We see darkness and we see light. But God, you are inviting men and women out of the darkness, into the light, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. So God, I pray for that man or that woman here today who's never had that moment of surrender where they said, yes, Jesus, I believe. You died for me. You rose again, and I will follow you as Lord. God, how I pray that for them, this really would be their day of salvation. Father, would you move? Would you work? Would you knock on the doors of hearts? Even now, God, we ask you to do what only you can do. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name.